welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 168. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Strange stories aren't always found in speculative fiction markets, you know. We bring you part two of our Drabble News Ducks Are Bastards special. Check this. Ed was only ten at the time. The question had been plaguing him again, twisting and knifing like a splinter in his mind. There was something wrong with the world, but no one else could see it. On that day, as they were walking under the trees, the words had tumbled out of his mouth. Why do we feed the ducks, Grandma? She had tensed then, holding her plastic bag to her chest. It was filled with small pieces of bread. She looked around, warily. Why do you ask? She said. I don't know, it's just something I've always wondered, he said. His grandma had sighed and looked out at the lake and the birds swimming there. Do you know much about ducks, Edward? She asked. No. They're a contradiction. On the surface, what you can see, they glide serenely across the lake, yes? But underneath, their legs, they're constantly moving, always in frantic motion. He remembered his grandmother had seemed ill at ease. They left the lake when the bread ran out, walking slowly back along the gravel path. The ducks watched them go. Setting the mood there was a little clip from Drabblecast episode 66, back in the archives, Creatures in Disguise by James Shackle. Ducks are a contradiction, the story goes. On the surface, they glide serenely across the lake, but underneath, they're constantly moving. And once you hear a little bit about what's going on underneath, I think you'll understand why. Horrendous violation. Unreversible trauma. Innocence lost. Science. Hey, we're all friends here, right? Let's talk duck penises. Why duck penises, you might ask? I don't know. We're all just feeling a little frisky here in the States, I guess, ever since last week's World Cup game when England actually tied our crappy-ass soccer team one-to-one. What is the currency used in the United Kingdom? Uh, <laughs> What's the currency in the United Kingdom? What is it? In the United Kingdom, I don't know. Possibly American money. Queen Elizabeth money. Yeah, who is Tony Blair? I don't even know. Okay. All right, any guess? Any guess? Skater? Tony Blair is an actor. Linda Blair's brother? Chasing down the dream, we're one in the 
And, of course, because duck penises are a wonderful example of the strange things that happen when sexual conflict shapes the evolution of animal bodies. From discovermagazine.com. Researchers from the Yale University Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology are trying to encourage male Muscovy ducks to launch their ballistic penises into test tubes. And that's what she said. Normally, the duck keeps its penis inside out within a sac in its body. When the time for mating arrives, the penis explodes outwards to a fully erect 20 centimeters, around a quarter of the animal's total body length. The whole process takes just a third of a second, and researchers hope to capture it all on high-speed camera. So why might ducks need freaky exploding ballistic weenies, you ask? Well, while male and female ducks usually form bonds that last for a whole mating season, as we learned last week, rival males often violently force themselves onto females. Duck rape. To gain the edge in these conflicts, drakes have evolved large corkscrew phalluses lined with ridges and backward-pointing spines, which allow them to deposit their sperm further into a female than their rivals. These extreme penises are even more unusual when you consider that 97% of bird species lack any penis whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, you think that's crazy. You've only heard half the story, man. Get this. The cha-chas of female ducks have actually developed highly specialized countermeasures. Their vaginas are equally long and twisting, lined with dead-end pockets and spirals that curve in the opposite direction. Their organic chastity belts evolved to limit the effectiveness of duck rapists with lengthy genitals. Two years ago, Dr. Patricia Brennan from Yale showed that duck species whose males have the longest penises tend to have females with the most elaborate vaginas. Now she's found further evidence that these complex genitals are the result of a long-lasting war of the sexes. Wow. So opposing spines and the corkscrew shape of the female duck's vagina are actually physical barriers that prevent the male from launching forth his ballistic penis to its fullest extent. Ducks really are a contradiction, huh? Talk about playing hard to get. Oh, come on, I bought you the freaking lobster. No, 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 all right, all right, jeez. But hey, don't worry too much, all you pie quacka alphas out there. Don't throw away your hope slash duck roofies yet. Researchers have found that not all male ducks are equally quack blocked. Those that the female duck actually wants to mate with have an easier time. If the female duck is into a male, she strikes a pose that signals her receptiveness, and she's able to contract the walls of her genital tract. Males who try to force themselves upon her receive no such help and have to cope with vigorous struggling. What did you bring me? Brought you a hamburger? <gasps> I love hamburgers. I'm uh, gonna go get in my swimsuit. Is that okay? So how do you like the backyard? Good, good. How are you? Nice to see you. Why don't you have a seat right over there on the other side, please? The female may not be able to resist such advances, but her convoluted vagina gives her ultimate control over where the sperm of her current partner ends up. The fact that only 3% of duck offspring are born of forced matings suggests that females are indeed winning the battle of the sexes. You go, girl. So ducks may be bastards, but there is a happy ending to this tale after all. Corkscrew vagina beats ballistic penis. You know, it's interesting to think, 
I wonder if some form of duck morality is becoming an adaptive trait in these ducks. Does this mean that only the more gentlemanly ducks will be able to create offspring, passing on to the next generation their good character and fidelity? So my apologies to my wife, Regina. Uh, she has been horribly uh, hurt uh, by my behavior. In ducks, is evolution slash natural selection weeding out their sexual deviance? I'm innocent. I didn't force her to do anything against her will. But I thought curbing that kind of behavior was religion's job. I didn't want them to see him in that prison uniform in front of everybody. I admitted that I've had uh, 15 to 20 minutes relationship with Jessica Hunt. Or the law and people who make the law. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. This is all backwards. I mean, the strongest get the babes, right? No, they watch me read me. The wealthiest. Hey, it's, uh, it's Tiger. I need you to do a huge favor. Take your name off your phone. My wife went to my phone. The most powerful. <laughs> Not the most respectful and well-mannered. This ain't survival of the fittest anymore, it's survival of the considerate. And I'll tell you what else it is. A damn good explanation for homosexual necrophilia in the adult male mallard. Pickens are slim and being a mallard sex offender ain't what it used to be. And that's the news. We've got a link to some duck penis video footage in our show notes. I double-dog dare you to go watch. You will not believe what you are seeing. Anyways, onward and upward. It's Drabble time. Drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble comes to us from Travis Scott Greer, and it's called The Gray House. Travis lives in Colorado Springs, and we ran another of his Drabbles a few weeks ago called The Minor in episode 164, right before a Christine Catherine Rush story called The Observer. And we're happy to have him back on the show. The old man who lived on the corner, in the small gray house next to the gravel road, was out on his front porch. He wore a necklace made of two tiny bottles filled with blue water. The man's long white hair stirred in the breeze as he sat and hummed softly. The sound caused the water to bubble and change colors. Later that evening, two kids decided to break into the house. They never returned home. It was several days before the old man sat on his front porch again. He wore a necklace made of four small bottles. Our feature story this week is Route 9 by Samantha Henderson. Samantha lives in Southern California with corgis, cats, bogarts, and rabbits. No, that's Corgiville Fair. Well, it's true about the corgis and rabbits anyway. She also has a lovely family, works as a church office coordinator, and writes fiction and poetry upon occasion, several of which you've heard here on the show. So without further ado, Route 9 by Samantha Henderson. 
How long's it been, Tex? A while, I know. Well, ever since I got my route switched. Haven't seen any of the guys that haul freight up north in donkey's years. Why? Well, I'm probably just drunk enough to tell you, Tex. Need another beer, though. You still a Dos Equis man? Well, two years ago it must have been. Me and Manny and a couple of the other old boys, Carlos and T-Bone, we met up at the uh, last Dairy Queen outside of Lompoc. Manny's chain-smoking like he always does, which is why we had to sit outside at those dinky plastic tables with the cigarette burns all over them. Manny was going on at me about that shortcut I liked, Route 9. I'm telling you, that place is god-awful weird, Joe, he said. Went on about that time a couple years before he broke down out there. No moon, dark as hell, nothing but static on the CB. Engines working fine till I went behind the hills. Not a lick of traffic, so I couldn't hitch a ride. So I pulled over and turned on the safeties. Took a piss, got in the back bunk for the night. Just as I was dropping off, I heard it. Tapping. Tapping all over the damn truck. Like sharp little fingers. Little bony fingers. Well, then Carlos told him what I always thought but never said. Rain. Just rain and wind, Manny. And he snorted and did that little ducking thing with his head, dragging on the cigarette. Wasn't rain. I know what rain sounds like. This was tapping. And whispering. Buzzing whispers, like bees talking. I was gonna check it out until I heard that whispering. Then I hunkered down and waited. I pointed out how it could have been just sand blowing across the asphalt. And it was late and he was tired and... He gave me that squint. You weren't there, Joe. I know you like that route and I'm just trying to warn you. I said I meant no offense. He stared for a minute at those brown hills and I noticed the pink spots under his thinning hair where he was sunburned over and over and white spots starting in at the middle of those. I was thinking skin cancer will get him if the cigarettes don't first. He blew out a long stream of smoke before going on. Well, the tapping and the buzzing stopped after an hour or so, and then silence. No crickets, no road noise. Took me a while to get sleepy again and all that silence, but my eyes were shutting. And then the inside handle of the bunk door moved. Real slow, wiggling back and forth. Like someone, something was trying to open it quiet so I wouldn't hear. I grabbed that some bitch like a lifeline and held on tight, felt a few more wiggles, and then it stopped. But something was out there, something that wanted me, and it tried the outside handle a few times. I hung onto that thing all night, even when I fell asleep. Come morning, my arm was locked in position. Took me about an hour to unkink it cold nights it still gives me hell well the rig started up fine not a cough in her cb worked too i delivered the load found a motel and slept all day and half the night but when they were unloading i saw what was on the windshield it was pretty dusty and something whatever had been doing the tapping i guess left prints all over it 
not like feet or fingers. Best I can describe it was like those octopus suckers all over the glass like little mouth prints, and inside each print little dots like hooks, like teeth. Had to look through those prints till I found a station and could hose them off. I don't even like to drive the five anymore, not up here where I can see the Route 9 turn off. Don't talk to me about your shortcut, Joe. Well, you know and I know it's more than likely Manny was pulling a double shift and near to hallucinating, and the tapping was rain and the buzzing was crickets or electrical lines, and the handle moving was a dream, and the prints nothing but raccoon tracks. Right. Yeah. Excuse me, Tex. I need another beer. You? I know why some truckers don't like Route 9, and I won't deny I saw some weird stuff, especially at night. Lights out in the cornfields like someone was taking a tractor for a joyride, driving it up and down hills where there weren't any hills. I saw a biplane once, red with black crosses like those German World War I planes, landing at a private airstrip at dusk. But it was swooping, touching the tarmac, lifting, turning, swooping again, like nothing but a helicopter ought to be able to do. I was always seeing stuff like that. Or the way those rabbits lined up on the side of the road at night, waiting for something, their eyes glowing red in the headlights. Or how some of those live oaks grew into strange shapes, humped and twisted, with branches that looked like they could grab you. You've driven enough to see the weird stuff that's out there. Hell, weird's gotta go somewhere after all. But there's something about Route 9. I always made it a point to take Route 9 once a month or so, if the weather was right. One thing, if your timing was on, you could shave 45 minutes to an hour off your drive. Second, I like to get my slice of apricot pie at the Lemon Tree Cafe at Christian. Christian's one of these tiny towns halfway along, not much more than a gas station in the middle of the cornfields. You've seen them a hundred times. Broken down shanties and a couple farmhouses. Main street with old storefronts and a second-hand store with greasy windows that's never open. And the lemon tree, with Jeannie wearing her little pink uniform like something straight out of Leave it to Beaver. And Eddie cooking in the back and hollering hello through the kitchen door. It could be weeks, months even, since I came through last, and it was always the same. I wondered how they stayed in business. Never anyone there but a few locals and the occasional trucker. And not many of those either. Sweet genie on Route 9. Boy, I tell you, if I could write, I'd have a hit with that one, huh? Sweet genie on number 9. Always makes me feel so fine. Sorry, I'm kind of nervy tonight. Could use a cigarette if you got a pack. Thanks. Thought you gave up smoking, Tex. Yeah, thought I did too. Apricot pie. Best pie I ever had. It was September that last time, and late afternoon when I reached Christian but not too late for pie. Jeannie smiled like always when I took my usual place, three stools right off the register, 
but right away, I figured something was wrong. It was a smell, a harsh chemical smell, like paint remover, acetone. I glanced around to see if there was a woman doing her nails. Only other customer in the place was a trucker from England I saw sometimes on my routes, and he was reckoning up. He left a tip on the table, returned my nod, and headed out. The smell lingered. It wasn't him. Funny how some smells can make you nervous. Coffee, grilled cheese, and pie, Joe? Said Jeannie. Same as every time. And I turned around to say yes. But her face looked tight. Her smile stuck on like a band-aid. And something else was wrong. Usually, Jeannie called the order back to Eddie in the kitchen, and he repeated it back to her. Sometimes, Eddie lumbered out, wiping his hands on a greasy towel just to say hi. But this time, Jeannie walked the order back into the kitchen, and Eddie didn't say anything. When the door swung open, I got a fresh whiff of that acetone smell. A minute later, she came out, too fast, like someone pushed her from behind. She poured my coffee from the pot behind the counter and put the cup down too fast. Some of it slopped onto the saucer. The kitchen door hadn't swung all the way shut. Someone had their foot, or something, at the sill, propping it open. A figure was there, almost a shadow. My heart beat harder. I bent over my coffee and squinted at the figure. It moved slightly and came into focus. I recognized him. A kid I'd seen sometimes, out on the sidewalk and sometimes at a corner booth. Late teens, black hair that might be dyed, pimples, a sour look. Just a kid that hadn't outgrown his nonsense yet. I wouldn't be surprised to learn he was Jeannie's son or nephew or Eddie's either. He always had that dissatisfied look of someone who belonged but didn't want to. The smell of acetone grew stronger. When Jeannie moved to the pie case, the kid shifted back, but not before I saw the knife he held. I eased one foot to the ground, ready to do I don't know what. Lunged left or right, over the counter, duck. Jeannie was back in front of me with a plate. Apple today, Joe, she said. Her skin looked tighter. We don't have apricot. Out of season. Well, that was a lie. They always had apricot, even out of season. Wonder how they'd manage that. I stared at her, then glanced behind her at the door. White-lipped, she shook her head. Well, I guess I'll take the apple then, I said, easing down from the stool. I'll be right back, Jeannie. Gotta take a piss. Normally, I never would have talked to her like that. Just wanted the kid to buy it. Sure, Joe, she said, and I backed up left, out of sight of the kid. Then I ducked under the counter, crept right to the back of counter access, and inched down the wall. I could see her arm and elbow in the doorway, and hear her whispering to the kid, hear him whispering back. I saw his black t-shirt behind her shoulder. He'd come from behind the door and was backing her against the jam. 
It was a knife after all. I grabbed Jeannie from behind and jerked her to the side, too hard, but it couldn't be helped. The kid lunged at me, but he was unbalanced, and I grabbed his knife hand and pulled it down, hard, twisting it. Something broke under my hand, his wrist, or maybe the end of his arm bone. It broke easier than it should, more like a dry piece of wood than a bone. The knife clattered on the floor. Jeannie screamed, short and sharp in my ear, and the kid yelled something I couldn't catch as I twisted his broken arm, turning him round and hooking my other arm around his neck. I outweighed him by 50 pounds at least. He wasn't going anywhere. Call the cops, I told Jeannie. She didn't move. Shock, probably. I wondered about Eddie then. Hey Eddie, are you okay in there? No answer. The kid giggled, a high-pitched giggle, like a little girl. No, said Jeannie, in a weird, calm voice. I didn't know if she was talking to the kid, or me. Still don't. I clamped my arm across his neck a little firmer, but he kept on giggling. His right hand dangled, useless, but that didn't seem to bother him any. Better call the police, Jeannie, I said. Eddie, are you all right, man? I started to drag the kid into the kitchen with me, but Jeannie touched my arm as if she was trying to stop me. I wanted to shake the kid to stop that damn giggle. I took three big steps into the kitchen, holding him against me, and then I saw what happened to Eddie. He lay on a big hunk of butcher block that was the center island table. His legs dangled over one end, and his arms were spread open. He'd been opened from neck to groin in one single clean cut. His skin was flayed back in two big symmetrical flaps, like a giant butterfly. I feel sick thinking about it now. But then, <laughs> then it didn't even seem real. I felt numb. Thing was, Eddie's insides were all wrong. I seen pictures of autopsies and I seen people smeared across the highway. All you see usually is a red and pink mess and sometimes loops of intestine if their guts spilled out. But Eddie, inside his body were these bright green and yellow shapes, cubes, triangles, spheres, all jumbled together, each the size of a small child's fist. The surfaces were dimpled like they were made of rubber, and they looked wet. The acetone smell was strong. I noticed something else. Eddie didn't have any ribs. He looked like a big, oval mixing bowl. My grip on the kid's neck slacked for a second, and he started to wriggle away. I jerked him back. His giggling had changed into a kind of hiss. Jeannie stood beside me, and she hissed back. And that's what got me. Not Eddie, cut open and full of strange shapes, but that noise, that hiss, coming out of Jeannie's pretty mouth. She lifted her hand, palm out, and something whipped fast out of the middle of her palm, too fast for me to see it right, and I felt it slash past my face, 
long and red, like a thin tentacle. It wrapped around the kid's head and jerked hard. And there was another snapping sound, and I let him go. He fell to the ground, limp, and a little curl of green came out of his nose. Couldn't be something like a mouth at the end of that tentacle, that feeler that whipped back into Jeannie's hand. Couldn't be. Sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes an average, nice high school kid finds his dad's gun the night his girlfriend breaks up with him and his road turns left when it should have gone right. Sometimes you cheat on your wife and in the morning you have no idea why you did it. Sometimes you break too hard on a rainy night and your rig goes over a bridge. I suppose sometimes things go wrong in weird, too. Sorry, Joe, she said in her old, pretty voice. Joe, you gotta go. Fast. I was backing away from her, out of the kitchen door. They looked like some kind of freakish still life in there. Eddie, flayed and peaceful on his block, filled with rubbery shapes. The kid curled on the floor like a big Labrador, Jeannie watching me, hands on hips. My coffee was still on the counter, in the display case, a row of pies. I wasn't hungry. Jeannie, I began, raising my hands. She shook her head. I didn't press her. She didn't want to tell me, and I reckon I didn't want to know. I walked out the door, looked up and down the street. Two blocks away, an old rust-colored Buick was cruising towards us. For a second, I considered flagging it down. Only a second. It was way too quiet. No engine sound, just the sticky sound of rubber tires on asphalt. I forced myself to get in the truck, slow, like there was no problem at all and started it up. The Buick passed down the other side of the street, slowing as it went. The windows were tinted dark. I locked the doors and forced myself to look straight ahead while the truck warmed up. And I wondered all that time, until I could get the engine to catch, if I hadn't walked in just at that time, what would have happened? Would I have found Jeannie all opened up like that, all yellow and green inside? Or would she have squared everything away, all neat and tidy, and given me my pie and a smile like nothing had happened? I was across the Golden Gate before the smell of acetone faded. Damn, sorry about all that. I can't stop my hands from shaking. That's what the sawdust is for, I guess. All that was a year or so ago. I haven't taken Route 9 since. Well, once. A month or so after it happened. Clouds were gray and lowering over the dried-out cornfields, and I didn't spot any scarecrows. Seemed to me there were more dead oaks 
I drove slow past Christian's main street. No one was there, no cars but a burnt-out Buick. The pumps were gone from the gas station. The never-open antique store was boarded up. The front of the lemon tree was weathered like twenty years had gone by. I thought about getting out and knocking on the door, but the idea gave me the cold sweats. I dream about it sometimes. Always starts the same. Main street all dusty and windy with tumbleweeds blowing by. Then I hop out of the cab and walk up to the door. I can't see through the windows because they've been soaped up. And besides, there's something dark behind them, blocking them. I knock on the door, and at first, nothing happens. I can't even hear the knock or the wind blowing. And then the door starts to crack across like a thick brown eggshell, and pieces of it fall away, and inside it, pulsing in and out like it was breathing, is meat. It fills the entire inside of the door. It fills the cafe. There's globs of fat in the meat, and veins running through the meat, and here and there stuck in the meat is a triangle, a cube, rubbery and green and yellow. An eye opens up in the meat. A human-looking eye with eyelashes and everything. A little below it and to the right, Another eye opens. I look down, and a dozen eyes are looking right back up at me, studying the surface of the meat all the way down to the sidewalk, blinking and staring and blinking. Sorry, Tex. Didn't mean to hurt your arm. Still gives me the shakes. You know, Tex, I hadn't seen Manny Lobo since that time outside the Dairy Queen. Wonder if he got cancer after all. I suppose he might have retired, huh? Except him and T-Bone were pretty close, and as far as I know, T-Bone hasn't heard from him either. And I think... I think I did you no favors in telling you all this. In fact, I think you better get out of here, Tex. And if anyone asks about where you've been, you should tell them I'm drinking too much and making up crazy stories that no one could take serious. Why? You really want to know? Well, because you see that girl behind the bar, Tex? The blonde with the sweet face? That's Jeannie. And she saw me about 20 minutes ago. And she's scratching her palm like it's itching her real bad. And now, most everyone's left for the night, and the cigarette smoke and perfume's gone. And I'm noticing something I didn't before. You see that guy in the next booth? And that girl in the cowboy hat that just went up to the bar? They stink of acetone. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. 
Let's hit some story feedback. We're at episode 164, I think. The Observer by Christine Catherine Rush. This one was hit-miss with people. Muncie said it's an incredibly powerful story that dealt with a lot of ideas. War's tendency to dehumanize, genetic manipulation destroying the person manipulated, our unwillingness and capability to recognize the other. There was a lot going on here, and I loved it. Powerful stuff. Selden Crisis said, Just wanted to say how much I absolutely love this story, especially how the author told the story without actually, you know, telling a story. It was more of the equivalent of painting a picture than playing a movie, and the style spared the audience, well, most of it, the gory details of combat slash war while still showing its consequences. Very effective and powerful. If you haven't yet, say hello in our discussion forums. We'd love to get to know you. Just like you're about to get to know our kick-ass donor of the week. Chris Quartetti. Chris is a software engineer living in Silicon Valley, and his favorite computer science areas are genetic programming, graphics, and simulated emergent behavior, like birds flocking, etc. Uh-oh. He likes to go by bicycle instead of by car because it keeps him healthy and doesn't burn oil or make smog. He enjoys macro photography and working on perfecting his cappuccino-making techniques at home. And we're super appreciative of his support. Thanks a lot, Chris. You know, the Drabblecast doesn't run off wishes and good cheer alone. We've got to pay authors and buy apricot pie and all sorts of other costs. Help the show out if you've got the means. We've got several donation support options off of our main page, www.drabblecast.org. Okay, so twobble time. Each week, of course, we choose a winner from our discussion forums who wrote a 100-character story, spaces not included, and we publish it in our Twitter feed. If you're not following us on Twitter, you oughta. You get these weekly winners earlier than everybody else, and occasional other fun nuggets. This week, adding another notch to his twit-fic belt, Muncie, with this nutritious story. They found me hours later, catatonic, face frozen in unspoken horror. Still at the table, my bowl of Cthulhu's, uneaten. With the cyclopean taste that kids go mad over. Well, that's our show. The Travelcast is, of course, produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it or sell it, but share it freely on the internet. Special thanks to Broken Cyborg for this week's episode art. Check out more of his alternative photography at www.brok.encyb.org. How clever. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that apricots are out of season. <laughs> <laughs>